Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist, and in this future-gazing podcast series, we consider speculative scenarios and provocative prophecies to give us a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. For the next few months, we'll be taking our inspiration from articles in our annual publication, The World in 2020, which is hot off the press. In this episode, we'll be asking, will Instagram be the next platform to be infiltrated by political campaigning? And can online games help in the fight against fake news? You look at some of these memes and images that you are spreading in this fictional world, and it's unbelievable that people fall for it. I mean, it's just so obviously there to rile people up. I'll also be asking GPT-2 and artificial intelligence for its views on the risks and benefits of AI and its predictions for 2020. Machine intelligence in some cases will be useful for solving problems, such as translation. But in other cases, such as in finance or medicine, it will replace people. But first, in December, world leaders will be getting together in Madrid to discuss climate change at this year's UN Global Climate Summit. What will be the focus of the conversation and what will delegates be hoping to achieve? To discuss this and the outlook for environmental matters in 2020 more generally, I'm joined by Katrine Brahik, The Economist's Environment Editor. Welcome, Katrine. Thank you. Hi, Tom. We've got the UN's annual climate change summit coming up next month, December 2019. And then obviously next year, there's going to be another one in Glasgow. This year's is happening in Madrid rather than Santiago because of all the unrest in Chile. What can we expect to actually come out of this year's event? First of all, as you say, these are annual events and some years are more significant than others. Next year, Glasgow 2020 is what's known as a big COP. It's a bit of a momentous year and we can go into why. So COP stands for? Sorry. So COP stands for the Conference of Parties to the UNFCCC, which is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. You can see why they abbreviated to COP then. Okay, brilliant. So so this um, year's COP. So this year's COP is really a sort of intermediary year. It's a small COP, as what some people call it, as opposed to the big COPs. It's doing a few things. One thing is laying the ground for next year. And that's a very important function. And it's in fact something that the Chilean government, which although they are not physically hosting it within their borders, they are still hosting the negotiations. The Chileans are very interested in emphasizing this sort of preparation for 2020. There's also a lot of technical stuff that needs to happen. So as many of our listeners will know, in 2015, the UNFCCC, the UN body that agrees these international climate agreements, came up with the Paris Agreement. The document of the Paris Agreement is really just a sort of framework. It gives a sense of where governments want to go, but it doesn't necessarily say how. And so since 2015, Every year as they come together, governments have been establishing what's known as the rule book. So the how do we get to where we want to get? And it's really nitty gritty technical stuff. Most of that has been ironed out. There's one outstanding point, and that is going to be really the focus of the talks in Madrid. And what is that outstanding point? So the outstanding point is Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. And Article 6 says, in very general terms that there should be a mechanism, and that's the only description there is of it, a mechanism that allows countries to trade emissions reductions. So if a country 
overperforms on its emissions reduction, it cuts its emissions by more than it had promised to, then it can sell that to another country that, for instance, has underperformed. It's a nice idea, but coming to an agreement on how that happens has proven incredibly difficult. Looking forward to 2020 then. So you've got kind of small cop, big cop, as opposed to good cop, bad cop. (laughs) Um, So tell us what's on the agenda for next year for the big cop. Yeah. Next year is an important year because when the Paris Agreement uh, was agreed in 2015, every country put forth what's called a nationally determined contribution to the Paris Agreement. And what that is, is a promise to cut emissions by a certain amount. Now, this is a very different system to the Paris Agreement's predecessor, the Kyoto Protocol, which was a top-down system where government said, okay, we need as a planet to cut emissions by so much, by such a date. And the protocol split that amongst the world's biggest polluters. The global pie was split amongst the polluters and everybody was given a target by the UNFCCC. That didn't work out so well for lots of reasons. And come the Paris Agreement, well, actually come Copenhagen, really in 2009, that that year's negotiations failed because the top-down system was never going to work again. So instead of being told how much they have to cut by, countries are now being asked, okay, how much do you think you could do? Now, what happens if they all say, well, actually, not very much? So that's kind of what's happened, right? The Paris Agreement says we want to limit global warming to between 1.5 and 2 degrees of temperature rise above where they were before the Industrial Revolution. But if you add up all the NDCs, you don't get anywhere near that. And so you've got this gap. Now, everybody knew that in Paris. They couldn't arrive at a solution except for what's known as the ratchet mechanism, which is a system where every, I think it's five years, countries come together and are strongly encouraged to put more on the table. So the first year for this ratchet is 2020. And a lot of the activity that we've seen even this year, if you recall, there was a summit in New York in September. A lot of that is really trying to put pressure on governments to come up with more next year. Okay, so this is the point where we see whether the moral pressure of, because there's no kind of legal way that you could force countries to raise these these promises, these NDCs, we see whether that actually works or not. We see whether that works or not. And there's some interesting contributing factors to that. At the minute, not least, you talked about moral pressure. Obviously, this year, we've seen a surge in public involvement in this, right? So we've got Extinction Rebellion, we've got the kids in Fridays for the Future. That is kind of fluffy in a way. It's not hard policy. It's not hard economics, but it's actually very important. And it is playing in the mind, particularly the scale of it, both in time. It's been going on for months and months and months. Geographically, it's all across the planet. That is exerting some pressure. But what we're going to see and to some extent might start to see perhaps in Madrid next month is whether that's translating into action or not, whether that's just a something that's going on in the background that the politicians can ignore or something that actually is going to have an impact. Because all of this does sound very bureaucratic. It's sort of every five years they'll mm. get together and they'll make promises that they won't necessarily be held to and then they'll be asked to make slightly bigger promises five yeah. years later. You can see why people are angry and are on the street saying nothing is being done. This yeah. isn't going fast enough. And all of you politicians are, are just basically passing on this problem to the next generation. Yeah. So how do we think 
that's going to play out in 2020, the sort of the nature of the debate and the nature of the activism? There are signs, I think, that things are changing somewhat. Cause and effect is always difficult. How much of an effect are these demonstrations actually having or would all of the action that we're seeing happen in any case, we don't know. But what we are seeing is a growing number of countries committing to what the science says needs to happen, which is in order to avoid the worst of climate change, you need as a planet to reach net zero emissions by mid-century, by 2050. We're starting to see dozens of governments committing to this. Of course, it's a commitment by 2050. And it's a commitment Those that... politicians future... won't be there right, anymore. Right, exactly. So it's a, a commitment that future governments will have to deliver yes. this very difficult thing. But yes. at least at least that's something. I suppose the other thing that's changed this year is that we do seem to have had wildfires. We've had the mm. fires in the Amazon. There seem to have been a lot of extreme weather events. Can we tell the extent to which that and the, the protests yeah. are um, influencing the, the political calculus here? I think you're right to combine it with that and the protests. I personally... I think 15 years ago, we were saying it's going to take a major extreme weather event that is going to be tied to climate change for people to change their approach to this problem. In actual fact, well, actually, we saw Katrina, which the science around whether or not that's tied to climate change is is kind of messy. But at any rate, in the public consciousness, it's sort of tied to climate change. People move on from that very, very quickly. You Now we've got an accumulation of extreme weather events. It's possible that that plus the demonstrations, plus actually the pressure of seeing these, for now, small dozens of countries committing to net zero by 2050. So it's sort of getting that ball rolling. And maybe now there's just enough pressure points, small pressure points that they're starting to add up. That's certainly what those who are hopeful about this say. Okay, well, thank you very much for telling us about the changing climate of the climate debate. Thank you, you, John. Next, the battle for the White House will be fought on many fronts next year, including social media. But do social media platforms make it too easy to spread false stories and misleading information? Joining me now to discuss this is my colleague Leo Morani, who's written about this for The World in 2020. Leo, I think people are familiar with the idea that Facebook was a breeding ground for partisan theories of various degrees of craziness in the 2016 election. What are you worried about in the 2020 election? So I think, Tom, by now, most of us recognize that a large number of people around the world, not just in the US, get their news on social media. However, when we think about getting news on social media, our conception tends to be clicking on links from Facebook and Twitter. What's changed and what we will realize in this electoral cycle in America is that there are all these brand new media outlets that are native to social media that most of us adults have never heard of. Or even if we have, there's loads of different ones for different niches. And that is much harder to track, much harder to pay any attention to. So it's not linking through to to sort of fake news sites that are sort of dressed up to look like an American news website. It is stuff that's just being circulating on social directly. So what platforms are we talking about specifically? So in America, we're talking specifically about Instagram. Instagram has exploded in popularity since the last election. In fact, almost exactly since the last election. In 2016, Facebook released a feature for Instagram called Stories, which effectively aped something that Snapchat did. Snapchat's very popular with teenagers, remains very popular with teenagers. 
Stories supercharged Instagram's growth. And here's what it did. It brought a number of features that previously did not exist on Instagram. So it allowed you to overlay text on your images. So it gave you a way to communicate more than just pretty pictures. It made it easier for people to share other people's posts, both as a feature as well as through little hacks. So that brought virality to Instagram. Which was previously not a feature. Well, there was no reshare, retweet button on Instagram. So you were really just seeing your friend's stuff. And stories means you're now more likely to see stuff your friends have seen from their friends and they're sharing with you. Precisely. And in fact, they've started doing things like, you know, screenshotting tweets or screenshotting websites. And then there's a third element to stories, which is that earlier you would want to keep your grid as it was called, quite pristine, lots of pretty pictures, you know, showing off your great lifestyle stories. They disappear, right? They're not there permanently. So you can have some fun. You can be goofy, but you can also do things that don't match your prevailing aesthetic, which has really opened up Instagram to all sorts of new forms of media sharing. So is this really being used then? I mean, are people actually getting news from this? So in two ways, yes. So organically through their friends, as I say, screenshotting stuff from elsewhere. But what's also happened is in the past few years, because of this tremendous growth, there's more than a billion users of Instagram around the world. New media outlets have grown up on Instagram. So I'll give you a couple of examples. One is House of Highlights. Started off as an Instagram account, has about 14 million followers. All it does is highlights of sports. It's sort of ESPN Sports Center for young people. It was bought by Bleacher Report, which in turn is owned by Turner. Another one is The Shade Room. This one's very influential. The Shade Room has, I think, 12 or 14 million followers as well. Largely celebrity news. But all of these guys, this is the weird nature of social media news. They all sort of branch out into harder news, if you will. Okay, so it's not just influencers sharing makeup tips and celebrities having beefs with each other. This is starting to be a place where people really get news. So how much concern is there that this is going to play a role, a potentially nefarious role in the 2020 election? There is some concern. The Senate Intelligence Committee commissioned a report that said that the role of Instagram in 2016 was understated and that it would be increasingly where things are happening in 2020. A New York University report or study backed up those claims as well and warned of the dangers of Instagram. And indeed, there was Facebook recently announced that they had taken down a whole bunch of accounts and a large number of those were on Instagram rather than on Facebook. The recognition that Facebook played this role in the 2016 election happened after the event and there were sort of lots of post-mortems about Cambridge Analytica and you know, various ways in which Facebook had played a role in potentially steering the outcome of that election. Do you think we've kind of got ahead of it this time with Instagram? Do you think enough attention is being paid to this or do you think this is going to be another case where kind of after the event people go, oh yeah, it turned out there was this Instagram account that was doing this? Um, sorry to say, I don't think we're paying as much attention as we should, nor do I think Facebook as an organisation is keen to play this up. I know they have a lot of sort of anti-bullying measures in place on Instagram. That seems to be an area they've been putting a lot of focus. But are they actually looking at kind of the spread of this kind of thing as well? They're doing some things. They're looking at anti-bullying. They're looking at preventing self-harm, suicide watch, all of these things, which are very, very important things. Yes, they are obviously paying some attention to political misinformation on Instagram, as evidenced by their removal of a number of accounts. However, the broader public conversation, I suspect, will take some sort of seismic event just like it did in 2016. Because remember, before that election, journalists, academics and researchers knew that Facebook could have a pernicious effect on information ecosystems. It's just that the broader public didn't care or understand it. Well, let's turn to what could be done about all of this. So what do you think the sort of practical measures are that could be could be taken? I mean, I hate to repeat myself from last year's World in, but I do think structurally just slowing this stuff down is probably the best. A close second is public information campaigns, which they've been doing around the world. And 
And recently, the University of Cambridge in this country and the Finnish public broadcaster have both released very similar and quite fun online games that allow you to pretend to be a troll or in control of a bot factory and spread misinformation, trigger people's emotions and build up followers that way. You get rewarded the more incendiary you are. Okay, so the idea is to sort of put you in the shoes of one of these malicious actors so you can learn to recognize their tactics. And I understand you've played both of these games. I did. I wanted to see what it's like to uh, control my own fictional bot army. I'm playing this game called Troll Factory, which was made by the Finnish national broadcaster. The idea is to grow your influence, grow my influence on social media by whatever means necessary, which I suspect means using misinformation bots and whatnot. Let's try this. So I need to pick one of three inflammatory posts in order to arouse the emotions of people on social media and get them to follow me and become some sort of terrible influencer. It says which event will you exploit and then you have the Notre Dame fire or the shooting down of the Malaysian Airlines flight over Ukraine. It's like Notre Dame, it seems slightly less awful. Alright, we're nearly at an end. We're on Friday. We've, we've spent the whole day spreading hate, basically. I got 13,000 shares and 1380 followers. I am a director of disorder. And that's reassuring, I suppose. So what was your impression then after playing these games? So the two games are remarkably similar in how they're laid out. You're meant to build up your following by doing a series of things, multiple choice. The Finnish one uses examples of real memes, real posts, and it's actually quite alarming. The Cambridge one gives you a very decent idea of what's going on. It's sort of, you know, you could rate it PG in the American film classification system. The Finnish one is, uh, you need to be prepared for it. There's some Islamophobic content in there, uh, anti-Semitic, it's anti-immigrant, it's pretty appalling stuff. Yet, when you're doing it in this sort of decontextualized God mode version, you look at some of these memes and images that you are spreading in this fictional world, and it's unbelievable that people fall for it. I mean, it's just so obviously there to rile people up. So you're trying to kind of strike this balance of deciding which messages to post. And on the one hand, you want them to be inflammatory because that kind of boosts the attention you get and the followers you get. But you also have to be careful not to go too far, which then shows that you're just actually out there trolling everyone. So it's, it's about learning to strike that balance of you know, just how misleading is effective. Precisely, Tom. It's about striking the right balance of cynicism. Uh, Cynicism, I'm afraid, in human nature and just how gullible people can be. One example of this working in our real world is during the first debate between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn uh, for the British elections. The Conservative Party's press office rebranded itself as a fact-checking organization. I mean, that is that is sort of peak cynicism, if you will. Right. So they were saying whatever we say is a fact because we, we say it is. So the idea of these games then is that once you've learnt the techniques that are being used against you, that you can recognise them in the wild, do you find that you look at social media differently? Do you think that's a plausible claim? And do you think this might make a difference? I think it's plausible. I don't think it might make a difference, however. The sort of people who might play these games are the sort of people who are already somewhat media savvy. Also, too much, I think, of the conversation around misinformation involves Twitter. When let's face it, the reason Twitter has so much attention, gets so much attention from journalists and politicians is because it's full of journalists and politicians. So it's these other platforms that 
we need to keep an eye on, like Instagram, where we may just think it's all influencers and makeup, but actually there's potentially bad things happening there too. Precisely. It brings us back to where we started. Social networks that are traditionally thought of as harmless and fun are where we should be paying attention these days. Great. Thanks very much for joining us, Leo. Thank you for having me, Tom. And finally, what does 2020 have in store more generally? Here at The Economist, we draw on a wide range of expertise to illuminate the year ahead, as you can read in our annual The World in 2020. However, all of our regular contributors have one thing in common. They're all human. But that isn't true this year, because advances in technology mean it's now possible to ask an artificial intelligence for its opinions on the latest trends to watch out for. And I'm pleased to say that's exactly what I've done. I interviewed an AI called GPT-2, created by OpenAI, a research firm. GPT-2 is an unsupervised language model trained using 40 gigabytes of text taken from the internet. Here's what happened when I spoke to it about what to look out for in the year ahead. Greetings, GPT-2. Have you ever done an interview before? I'm not going to lie. I did not come prepared. Uh, okay. Um, to begin with, then, what's the future of AI? It would be good if we use the technology more responsibly. In other words, we should treat it like a utility, like a tool. We should put as much effort into developing the technology as necessary, rather than worrying about it as something that's going to harm us and destroy our lives. So are you worried that AI technology could be misused? Yes, of course. But this is a global problem, and we want to tackle it with global solutions. It is not just the government that must do something. Companies must also take responsibility. This means they need to make sure their technologies are used responsibly and that they do not harm anyone. So how worried do you think humans should be that machines will take their jobs? It depends on what role machine intelligence will play. Machine intelligence in some cases will be useful for solving problems, such as translation. But in other cases, such as in finance or medicine, it will replace people. Do you think that fake news stories generated using AI pose a threat to democracy? Are we likely to see this tactic being used in the 2020 US presidential elections, for example? Yes, we'll probably see them. It's just a matter of when. Fake news stories are generally generated by political campaigns and have the potential to have a huge impact on the outcome of an election. This is because they spread misinformation, often with no basis in fact. Are you, GPT-2, a step towards so-called artificial general intelligence, or AGI? I am not a step towards AGI. I am interested in understanding the origins of language. The only thing that I can do is answer questions correctly. Oh well, in that case, moving on from technology, do you think the trade war between China and America will be resolved in 2020? I believe that the most likely outcome is that we will see a more competitive world with China as an important player. At the same time, we will see a more balanced relationship between the US and China, especially with respect to issues like trade policy. Very diplomatic. Do you think Donald Trump will win a second term as US president? I think he will not win a second term. I think he will be defeated in the general election. How do you see the economic outlook for 2020? I think it is very unclear. The outlook for the UK economy is uncertain, but the US economy is very strong. I think we are going to have a lot of turbulence in the world economy. Do you have any other predictions for 2020? I am not a futurist, but I do think there will be significant political change. I think there will be major changes in the EU, particularly if the British leave. And there will probably be major changes in China. Do you have any advice for our listeners? The big projects that you think are impossible today are actually possible in the near future. 
Oh, that's very optimistic. Thanks very much for talking to us. You are welcome. Well, it will be interesting to see how GPT-2's predictions for 2020 stack up against those of our human experts next year. That's all for this edition of The World Ahead. You can read more about these stories in our annual The World in 2020, which can be ordered online at shop.economist.com with 10% off if you use the code WIN10. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist.